Luke chapter 15, and I'm going to be reading verses 11 to 24. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. This is God's word. Can I come to your church? That was the question posed to me uh, quite a while back by someone who had been coming here and after several weeks, several, several weeks, this individual called me and wanted to get together for an appointment. And everybody has a story. And this person told me their story. And it was about an hour-long story. A lot like the story that you all just read here. And at the conclusion of this person's story, that's when the question hit me by this person. Now that you know what you know, 
can I still come to this church? What would you have said? What would you have said? We prayed. This person left. And I got to thinking about that story. I think that person broke nine of the ten commandments. They, didn't, they hadn't killed anybody. But they'd, they'd, they'd become proficient at the other nine. What would you say to this person? What kind of people are supposed to be in a place like this? Who's supposed to be here? Religious people? Fanatics? Jesus freaks? Is there a class of people that are allowed to be here? Is there a color of people allowed to be here? Uh, 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 you You can be here if you belong to a particular political affiliation. What kind of people belong in a place like this? What kind of people does God want near Him? It's really not a new question. It's a 2,000-year-old question. And it was asked in the presence of Jesus. that's That's really the context of this parable. This parable of the prodigal son. This parable is the answer to a question just like that, or actually a complaint from those who thought they knew the answer to that question. Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2 tell us the setting of this parable. And I like the way the message puts it in the message version. By this time, a lot of men and women of doubtful reputation were hanging around Jesus, listening intently. The Pharisees and religious scholars were not pleased, not at all pleased. They growled, he takes in sinners and eats meals with them, treating them like old friends. Well, they pretty much thought they knew the answer to that question, didn't they? And it is out of this context, this grumbling between the religious leaders and enemies of Jesus, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them, that that the Bible says that then Jesus told, Luke 15, 3, then Jesus told this parable. This parable of the prodigal son answers the question, it really answers several questions. Who is God? Who is God? What kind of a God do we worship here? The next question is, that it answers is, who are we? Who are we? And then it answers the question, what kind of a worshiping community does God want us to become? And that's what I hope we learn here as we go through this, this uh, probably one of Jesus' most uh, popular and well-known parables, the parable of the prodigal son. So let's just dive in to verse 11. There was a man who had two sons. Now, I've got two sons. I connect with this guy, and we've, we've, we've had a great life together. Our two sons and going fishing or camping or vacationing or roller coaster riding or... All-you-can-eat macaroni and cheese banqueting. 
I get that. It's been a good life. These boys had, these boys had a really good life in this uh, story. But one day, the younger son, son number two, he just starts getting an attitude, an attitude about life, attitude about dad. Dad, I, I, you know, I, I want to be out on my own. Dad, I, I, you know, I wish, I wish nobody had to tell me what to do. Dad, I wish I had a better life. They had a great life. They had, a, they had a wonderful life. They, they lived in like one, a, a, a Trails of Brittany Palace, but not on one of those puny little quarter of an acre lots. This was like a 5,000 acre spread. It was huge. It was an estate. It employed hired hands and servants and livestock. It was a, it was a, a, a magnificent, splendid plantation. This young man got to fish. He got to fish in his own pond, but he got tired of he got tired of catfish he wanted blue marlin and he was tired of tolono he wanted chicago i think rudyard kipling pretty much pretty much summarizes this younger son's attitude when he wrote my father glooms and despises uh, my father glooms and advises me my brother sulks and despises me and my mother catechizes me till i want to go out and swear and that's just about what he did in verse 12 when he said one day, Father, give me my share of the estate. Now, let's do a little Bible reading lesson here. Whenever we read the Bible, uh, the question, what does this mean to me, is really not a great first question if we're going to read the Bible. It's not. It's not. What does this mean to me? That's not a great first question. A better first question is, what did it mean to those who first heard these words? What did it mean to the original audience? That's what we want to find out. And then once we find out what that big idea is, then we can glean and extract what principles would be applicable for us today. And so, Father, give me my share of the estate. I mean, to a 21st century uh, Midwestern uh, American, we might think, oh, he just wants to sow his wild oats, and he, you know, he's asking his dad for his college scholarship money, his college tuition money, so we can just go out and do it. Well, kind of, but it's a lot deeper than that. It really is. <laughs> um, uh, we got to get into his world. I mean, you can say you can say the same sentence, and it can mean different things in different worlds. For instance. The phrase, I'm mad about my flat. I'm mad about my flat. Well, what does that mean? Well, I'll tell you what that means. It means yesterday when I went to go ride my bicycle, I went out to my garage and I noticed there was my back tire was flat and that aggravated me. It made me mad. I couldn't ride my bike. Huh? I'm mad about my flat. But if we were in London, England, and I said, I'm mad about my flat, what would that mean? It means I'm really happy about my apartment. That's what that means. See, see, same thing, two different worlds. Which world is this? Huh? Father, give me my share of the estate. Give me my share of the estate. He's, this is not just childish immaturity. It's not merely childish immaturity. This is mutiny. Because basically he's saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. 
Dad, do you have any plans on dying soon so that I can have my inheritance? It's not immaturity. It's mutiny. And, and when we unpack this, give me my share of the estate, there's, there's at least three levels of rejection that's going on here. First of all, there's the personal rejection. He is personally rejecting his father. Father, I don't want you. I want your stuff. Personally hurting his dad, breaking his father's heart. But then there's a vocational rejection that's going on here. You see, his father, you see, his father was a patriarch over this plantation, over this estate, and that employed people that was connected to the community and the livelihood of the villagers there. And it was not just, you know, they did not have their affluence in order to do what they wanted to do when they wanted to do it. It was a stewardship, it was a trust, much like in the spirit of Job chapter 29, which Job mentions before he suffered. Job was this patriarch. He was this this patron connected to his community. Job 29 says, My path was drenched with cream and rock poured out for me. Streams of olive oil. Speaking of his affluence. And then what did he do with that kind of affluence? Job says, I rescued the poor who cried for help. I rescued the fatherless who had none to assist him. The man who was dying blessed me. I made the widow's heart sing. I was eyes to the blind, feet to the lame, father to the needy. That's what he did with his uh, position, with his vocation. I took up the case of the stranger. I broke the fangs of the wicked and snatched the victims from their teeth. That's what this father did, and that's what this younger son is rejecting. I don't want that stewardship. I want a life of self-centeredness. It really is all about me, the younger son was saying. A personal rejection, a vocational rejection, and then... There was a community rejection, you see. A community rejection. Amazingly, verse 12 says that the father, it says, so he divided his property between them. Now circle that word property. Literally, it's the word life. He divided his life. Why did he say life? How could it be his life? Well, well, back then there was solidarity with the vocation and, and, and with the connection to the village life and the community and the, and the economy there. And it, you know, it all was unified and it kind of went together. And, and there, was this, there was this connection to the, to the land. And, and it reminds me of this very, this very uh, hallowed, sacred song in some parts of our country. You may know what it is. Oklahoma, where the wind comes whistling down the plain, right? And the wave in wheat, right? Yeah, and then what's that part of the song? We know we belong to the, to the land. We belong to the land. Notice it doesn't say that the land belongs to us. We belong to the land. There's solidarity to the land. And he divided his life between them, which meant in that day, the, the oldest son would get twice as much of the inheritance as everyone else. So we just know they had two. So that meant that the older son got two-thirds. The younger son received one-third. One-third of the estate 
vanishes. Now, let me tell you something. If, like, tomorrow morning, one-third of Bolting House Manor were to disappear and vanish, it would not even register in our economy, okay? (laughs) Trust me, okay? All right? That said, if one-third of the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, were to vanish tomorrow, one-third of the funding, one-third of the property holdings, one-third of the, 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 the workforce and all of that, you think, our, you think our community would feel it? Oh, you bet. See, You see what I'm saying? Some paycheck-to-paycheck hired hand is going to lose their job because of this boy. That's what I'm saying. Personal, vocational, community rejection. And verse 13 says that, that this young man, it says that after he got together all he had, what does that mean? That means he liquidated everything. Now, you know, we, we, we're in a world of stocks and bonds and we can make a phone call and trading happens and so forth, but this is not their world. You've got to, you've got to, to sell property, real holding, livestock, etc. And, and it's a process. It's a ritual. There's this process and ritual of, of, of bartering and haggling and it takes time, meaning if you do that quickly, there's going to be a fire sale here that's going on. You're going to get pennies on the dollar. And he leaves for the far off country. Verse 13. Squandered his wealth. Why did, why did he do this? Why did he reject his father and reject the vocation and reject the community? Why? Well, I mean, because he thought there was something out there. That's why. He thought his dad was holding back on him. You know, he thought his dad was just trying to put him under his thumb and control him. That's, that's why, you know? And it reminds me of uh, something that that great theologian, Brad Pitt, once said. <laughs> really, Brad Pitt has a commentary about this parable. Here it is, listen to this. This is what Professor Pitt says. <laughs> this is a story which says that if you go out and try to find your own voice and find what works for you and what makes sense for you, then you are going to be destroyed and you will be humbled and you will not be alive again until you come home to the Father's ways. It's an authoritarian tale told to keep people in line. Well, that's certainly a creative interpretation. But I've got to tell you, I've got to be honest with you, I mean, I'll be the first to admit that there's something attractive about the, about the notion of, of, the, of the distant country, this, this far-off place where nobody knows me and, 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 and I can do whatever I want, whenever I want to do it, with whomever I want to do it, however I want to do it, and I don't have to answer to anybody, and I can live on my own terms, and nobody's going to tell me what to do. And you know what? It is possible to live a kind of life where you can just do whatever it is you want to do, and it's awfully expensive. And most of us don't have Brad's bank account. Ironically, this is the irony. In the younger brother's pursuit of independence, everything he took with him to the distant country he got from his dad. Dad, I want my independence from you. Can I have some money? 
That's what we read here. And verse 14 says, after he had spent everything, he left his father's care, he left his father's protection, he left his father's custody, and he went to that distant country, and he burned through his cash, and after he was done with all of his cash, burning through after it was ashes, then the forces of nature took over. Verse 14 says, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. Now let me tell you something. We do not know famine. We don't. Now we know drought, okay? What's the difference between a drought and a famine? I'll tell you the difference. A, with a drought, you get brown grass. With a famine, you get orange hair bloated stomachs. That's the difference. And that's what's going on here. And that's when this young man learned that the distant country was really not a destination or a place. The distant country was really nothing more than an idol. An idol that he'd been chasing after. The Bible says that an idol is anything more important to you than God. The Bible says that an idol is anything you, you seek to give you what only God can give you. An idol is anything that you look to and say, if I could only have that, then my life would have value and meaning and significance and security. You see, idols are a lot like glaciers in the ocean. You know, there's the part of the glacier that you can see, and then there's the part that's unseen. And so, you know, there are surface idols. And on the surface, surface idols like, like drug abuse and alcohol abuse and abusing sexuality and, and, and shopping and spending and gambling and porn. But those are the, those, that's the surface. There are deeper, deeper idols beneath the surface that deal with acceptance and worth and significance. And that's why, church family, that an idol always, always appears in your heart before it is fashioned by your hand. That's why Acts chapter 7, verses 39 and 40, when speaking of that era in Israel's history, when they fashioned the golden calf, you know, after the parting of the Red Sea, and they fashioned that golden idol, uh, Acts chapter 7, verse 40 says, and so they fashioned the golden calf. Acts chapter 7, verse 39 says, but in their hearts, they turn to Egypt. See, an idol always appears in your heart before it can be fashioned by your hand. And an, an idol becomes this sort of functional savior attempting to rescue me from this false hell. See, that younger son, he thought he was in hell living with dad. And, and so the distant country had become his savior. Question, what's your distant country? What's your, what is it that you're looking for today thinking, if I just had that, you know what? Idols really at, it, at their core are not about bad behavior. It's about what you love. It's about what your heart turns to most. And thus the question, well, what was there to love in the distant country? Do you know what there was to love in the distant country? Do you know what there, you know what there was there to love in the distant country? Nothing. Absolutely nothing because nothing is there. 
That's part of the deceitfulness of idolatry. Isaiah chapter 41 verse 29 says, Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. See, the paradox is that it's, that it's a one-way relationship. You love the idol, you feed the idol, you sacrifice the idol, but what does the idol do for you? What does it do for you? It takes and it takes and it takes and it takes. And then it makes you long for pig food. This was a Jewish boy. This son of a wealthy Jewish family did the unthinkable in verses 15 and 16. He joined himself to a Gentile feeding pigs. So he went out and hired himself to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. And verse 16 says, he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating. But he couldn't even eat those pods. Why? Because the pods were made for pig's stomach, not his. He couldn't digest them. And so worse than having to feed pigs, this young Hebrew boy wished he were one. Don't you see? Just as God's character and God's nature is truth, an idol's character and an idol's nature is deception, lies, the lie that the idol's going to love you back, the lie that the idol's going to take care of you, the, uh, the lie that the idol is going to ease your pain, the lie, the lie that because we chose the idol, we can control the idol. That's a lie. Someone said idols leave us addicted to the narcotic of deceit. And I'll tell you what the deepest lie is. The deepest lie of idolatry is that there's no escape. When the idol looks to us and says, you'll never get out. I've got you. You're trapped. That's the deepest lie. And thank God this young man didn't believe that. Look at verse 17. When he came to his senses, when he came to his senses, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I'll set out. I'll go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. So, so, see, he doesn't want his bedroom back. He just wants to pay his father back. I, I, you know, I, just, I just want to pay the money back. I'm no longer worthy can also mean I'm not now worthy. I'm not now worthy to be called your son because I owe you this money. But give me some time, Dad, and I will be. I will be worthy. I'll work off the debt. I can do it. I can work off the debt. And, and it's well-meaning, and yet it's not in the Father's will because, you see, he thinks that what's in his dad's heart is that all of this is over a broken bank account. But it's not about a broken bank account. It's about a broken heart. And so he says, make me like one of your hired men. In other words, fashion out of me, Dad, a craftsman. That is to say, Dad, you know, send me to some sort of, of craft training school so that then I can come back and work off my debt and then become your son. That's how I intend to become worthy. That, this is what he meant 
when he said he had come to his senses. It was, it was his version of coming to his senses. And you can sense this here. In fact, in verses 18 and 20, you don't so much see it in the New International Version, but in, in some of your versions, verse 18 begins with, I will arise. And then verse 20, so he arose, like, so he arose, like Christ arose. Do you get the symbolism there? This young man is attempting a self-resurrection. I'm going to resurrect myself back from death to life by working this off. That's what he meant by coming to his senses. It was his version of repentance. But oh, church family, please hear me. Repentance is not deciding to do something about your sin. Repentance is acknowledging that you can't do anything about your sin. That's repentance. And verse 20 says, so he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father, while he was still a long way off, see, his father had been on the lookout. His father knows his son. He knows his son's going to fail. He knows that his boy is arrogant and is not going to return home until he has nothing. He knows that his boy's going to appear in rags. And he knows that once the villagers see him, they are going to chew him up. And so he has a plan. Before his son gets to the village, the father is going to go out to get him. The son had left home for the distant country and in the distance, the father goes and runs to him. That is huge. Runs to him. Aristotle himself said, great men never run in public. To run in public, that was just the ultimate humiliation for a great man. I will never be a great man. (laughs) You see those rich men in their long robes? You know, you're wearing those long robes and you try to run. See, then you got to hitch that robe up in order to run. And once you hitch your robe up, that's when the whole public sees your hairy legs. <laughs> and it's humiliating. See, as if to intercept the son from the mockery of the villagers, the father himself races to shield him and to kiss him and to fall over him. The father didn't wait for the prodigal to come to him. He goes out to resurrect the one who had been lost and dead. And is this not the gospel? Is it not the gospel? 2 Corinthians 5, 19 says that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. And what we need to understand is that the cross is not merely about the physical torture, but the agony of rejected love. And in this parable, Jesus tells of a father who leaves the comfort and security of his own home and humiliates himself before the village for the son that he loves. The the coming down and the going out 
to his son is a parable of the incarnation as the father runs out on the street and the village runs with him and and they circle the son. They want to see what's going to happen. And everything that happens there in public is going to be reported throughout the entire village. The son was the one who's expected to fall before the father, but that's not what happens. The father falls all over his son and holds him and, and kisses him on his unclean lips publicly. Colossians 2, 15 says, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, Christ made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Verse 21, that son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your sons. And he stops right there. See? He stops right there. He says, no more bright ideas. No more payback plans. Just, Dad, I'm unworthy. I'm broke. I need help. And his father gives him more than he can possibly imagine. He gives him honor. But the best robe on him, where would he get the best robe? From his own closet. It's his best robe. He gives him trust. He gives him the the signet ring. He gives him trust. Then he gives him shoes. In that day, only sons, only family members wore shoes. The slaves walked around in bare feet. Put shoes on him. You see, you see, our, pl- our plan is, God, make me a hired hand. And if I do this enough, and this enough, and this enough, and this enough, and this enough, then may- maybe, you know, if I obey, then you will love me. And that's not God's plan. God's, God's plan is, I love you so that you can obey. I love you. You're not a hired hand. You are my heir. You see, a hired hand can still revolt. But an heir must assume responsibility in the Father's kingdom. Someone wrote, Receiving forgiveness requires a total willingness to let God be God and let God do all of the healing, all of the restoring, all of the renewing. And as long as I want to do even a part of that myself, I end up with partial solutions such as being a hired servant. Can I still come to your church? Well, what what are you going to say? Someone says, well, who who are you talking about anyway? I said, well, I'll tell you where they sit. They sit right over here. And then they sit over there. And they sit over there. And they sit over here. And here, and here, and here, and here. And they sit there, and over there, and over there. And you know what? They're on stage. Here we are. Here we are. And the answer is yes. Yes. Yes, you see, we're a church filled with this story right here. The story about a son who became a slave, who became a son. Praise God. Thank God. This is why we worship. This is why we gather. This is why we go to the Dominican Republic. 
This is why we go to Peru. This is why we, this is why we serve in weekend of service. See? And church family, this is not just who we are, but this is, this is a parable about the kind of community that God wants to fashion out of us. Will we be the kind of church family where, are we going to be the kind of church family where people feel that unless they're cleaned up and, and have their lives together, then they're not welcome here? No, I don't want to do that. I don't want to pastor that kind of church. I don't. But I do want to pastor a church that smiles easily when we see the younger brother, a kind of church that isn't shocked by it all. A kind of church that has grace. A kind of church that is welcoming whether, they're, whether they've come to their senses or not. Or whether they're in the middle of it. See, so you, you may be in this distant country. You can be in this room right now and still be in the distant country in your heart. And I want to tell you, I want to tell you, if you will just come to God, no excuses, no plan, just broken, I'm sorry, I need help. The minute you open your eyes, you'll be looking right at Jesus' face. And you'll be sharing in a feast. A feast that we're going to share in, in about two minutes. You see, every, every Lord's Day, we participate in this feast. They had a feast. It was a fattened calf feast. That's the best. That's the best. Because the lost has been found. Can I still come to your church? Oh, you bet. Because the king wants you around his table. I close with a quote by Charles Spurgeon, a pastor in the 19th century. He said, oh, you are not dealing with trifles when you're dealing with the love of God to you. It is not a spare corner of the heart of God that he gives to you as you may give a little love to the criminals in the jails. But the great, inconceivably vast heart of God belongs as much to every Christian as if there were not another being in the world for God to love. Even as Jehovah loves his only begotten, so does he love each one of his children. Shall we pray? Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for gathering us in this place and giving us your robe and fitting us with your ring and letting us walk out of here with shoes on our feet. Thank you for doing to us and for us immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine. And thank you for the feast. We love you, Jesus. Amen.